Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter. I'm the Fiction Category Manager at Booktopia. I'm joined today by a fellow Booktopian, Shoni Prasad. Hi, Shanu. Hello. And we are really happy to be speaking with Kirsty Manning, who's come in with her, well, she hasn't come in, she's come in via Skype, um, with her third novel, The Lost Jewels. Hi, Kirsty. Hello. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you, um, even from a distance. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your third novel, The Lost Jewels? So The Lost Jewels is actually uh, a treasure hunt across three generations. It is based on a true story. There was a, um, a hoard of jewellery buried in London sometime in the mid to late 1600s and nobody knows um, who the jewellery belonged to. There were over 500 pieces. Uh, well, nobody knows exactly how many pieces there were, but over 500 have been recorded of diamond rings and um, pearl necklaces and bags of turquoise and rubies and gold buttons and just the most extraordinary Elizabethan and Tudor jewellery. And they were dug up on a work site in 1912 in London, in Cheapside. And, um, and then a lot of them were acquired for the London Museum. And my story is the imagined tale of um, a young woman, Essie, who, whose brother I imagined was one of the workmen on site the day the jewels were discovered. And it's the story of Essie's um, impoverished Irish childhood and keeping the family going in um, 1912 England. It's a time of suffragettes. And the story of uh, a modern woman, Kate, who is a a jewellery historian and she's been commissioned to go to London from Boston to write a story on the Cheapside Jewels for a glossy magazine. It's a huge commission, it's a big feature um, and a great gig and she decides when she's over there that she's going to see if there's some link between her mysterious great-grandmother and the jewels because her grandmother had mentioned that she was on site when a treasure was discovered so you've got a combination of family secrets and buried treasure. Family secrets and buried treasure. And, uh, um, yeah. I love it. Um, this is book number three for you. Um, it is. Are you finding a, a rhythm with writing these novels? What was um, uh, what, what are you finding is, is a constant for you? And, and what is, um, what's been challenging or interesting or different about, about this one? <laughs> oh, I'd love to say there's a rhythm. I just <laughs> um, I'm getting into it. I think um, I think every story, you know, I think you learn to trust yourself a bit more as a writer, and you know that the um, the work, your best work, well, my, certainly my best work comes from the doing and um, writing and writing over and over again. So I trust myself um, a bit more that I can get to the end of a novel and um, I trust the process a lot more. I think for me, I love to uncover hidden pockets of history. So with the Jade Lily, my previous book, that was the story of the um, Jewish refugees in Shanghai during the Second World War II. And I had no idea that they lived in Shanghai then. And then, um, and I actually came across the story of the Cheapside Horde. Uh, there was an exhibition in the London Museum a few years ago, and I read a review of it just um, when I was deep diving on the internet, you know, procrastinating the book that I was supposed to be writing. 
And I just started reading about this um, Cheapside hoard and I just couldn't believe that there were so many pieces of jewellery that nobody knew who they belonged to, what was the story behind it. And I think um, uh, it was just right for fictionalising because there were so many gaps that you could dive deep into between, between the facts. It's the wonderful um, theme I find with historical writers is that they'll procrastinate researching one novel and, and find the gem that, that sort of the, the germ seed of, of, of their next. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful endorsement of procrastination. It is. It is. It's, um, well, you know, it's, you get so excited when you're working on a new novel and then when you're in the middle of the novel, it becomes, you know, quite hard to know how it's going to get to the end. And, um, and so shiny new ideas are very attractive at that point. But I did, um, bench that because I sometimes have a few different ideas for novels, but that one just kept gnawing at me. And then, um, what I did differently for this book, and I think it really, uh, well, it's early days, but people have contacted me already to say that they're really enjoying. There's a third thread uh, woven through the novel, and that's the origin story of the jewels. So of one particular piece of jewellery, without um, any spoilers, it's a story of uh, a particular piece that uh, I trace its imagined past from origin through to uh, current day in the museum and it's a fictionalised piece but it's based on a, a, a similar piece that's in the collection and um, I guess for me I really wanted to show all the hands that pass over a gemstone and a piece of jewellery and what it means to craft a piece of jewellery, just the bespoke craftsmanship that goes into it and and the symbolism I mean just the very symbol of a ring it's about love and loyalty and power and um, infinity and uh, I just think they're amazing starting points for a story and great metaphors yeah. to kind of weave into so oh I I absolutely found that one of the most fascinating parts of the book I have to say was um, just being able to um, just through this one item be able to get glimpses into so many different lives um, all around the world, um, and uh, I just I just think that was really really so well done. So when it got to the end of the book and I found out that that piece itself was not an an actual piece, I was so I was so disappointed because I was just imagining this piece the whole way the whole way through. But then when I read your note and you said it was based on another piece that was real that we could see, then I was I was happy again, um, so that I could see something. <laughs> see something similar but another thing that I found really interesting and I think you mentioned in your notes as well was just about how often sto the stories particularly the stories that you're telling kind of get sort of swept under the rug a little bit and kind of um uh, you know, not treated as seriously because it's about subjects that, you know, that the world might not think are particularly serious like something like jewellery but you really show in this book that that's that's not the case and they're actually you know it, 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 there's a lot of meaning and there's a lot of world events that actually happen around um, and because of, you know, things to do with um, jewellery and other items that may not be, you know, treated as seriously as they as they should be. Yeah, and I think because people, uh, you know, it is something that often ends up on the um, feminine body and so it's associated with feminine stories. But, I mean, the story of the trade of gemstones and um, 
and the the craftsmanship and the style of craftsmanship that's the story of globalization and colonization and um you know it really does lead uh, to bigger tales that historians follow and i'm i'm so in awe of curators that do this for an actual living because just getting my head around how they kind of construct um what it meant because i mean jewelry just shows your class too and I try and write um, stories in all of my books with women that have not traditionally had a voice in literature too I think um, I think there's a lot of writers not I, I mean that's certainly not unique to me but um, there's certainly writers that are now looking for different voices and different ways to is- express the story rather than the one kind of history we've been given so it it allows for it's, it allows for open slather, really, when you're writing fiction. It, it seems to be a, a real theme in historical fiction at the moment that people are looking to women's stories, um, especially uh, at the turn of the century and in the early 20th century, um, you know, uh, the, the suffragettes pre-war. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot to pick apart. What, um, what draws you towards writing women's stories because that that seems to be a theme across your novels um you know I'm asked this quite a bit and it's a funny thing I got asked in another interview a while back about um why uh I do focus on strong women it's because well because they're the women I know they're the women I see in the world and um and I think that women you know so very rarely I look at my um, my own family of women. They're not often turning to the men folk in their life and asking them what they should do day to day and and how they will get through crises. It's often, um, you know, they've got this sorted in life and I think I want to write a story for those women. But I think in times past, I think that women were not weak. They weren't weaker historically it's just that history was recorded by people who weren't those women so um I think that it took I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage to keep going in tough times when all the odds are against you and I think women do that better than anyone because they are the ones that keep the family together they they really are the emotional um stabiliser and ballast of any family and I think I just really wanted to give voice to that. Absolutely that sounds terrific. Um, Take us to um, 1912 if you will. Um, This is Cheapside London where these um, jewels were dug up. Um, What did you do to research this? I mean you mentioned the um, exhibit um, what, what what kind of work did you do to research this um, find, and um, what uh, what 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 um, really um, jumped out at you from the get go? Uh, what jumped out at me, I think, uh, firstly, I just started reading on the internet uh, about this particular hoard, the Cheapside hoard, and I looked at all the Museum of London's, uh, I guess, coverage of the exhibition through various newspapers. And then I have a friend who's a jeweller in Melbourne and she was actually going up to the Cartier exhibition and I I tagged along 
with her to the um, art gallery, the NGV in Canberra. And I just walked around and she talked to me about um, gem cutting and sapphires and how most sapphires have what is perceived as a fault, but it's actually what makes them beautiful and that um, she was the one who told me in the Cartier there was a, a, a necklace with a, uh, emerald that was as big as a baby's fist and she said do you know how extraordinary how extraordinarily difficult that would have been to cut because they're so um, fragile and they can splinter really easily so to work with that stone is extraordinarily um, is extraordinarily challenging but it was traded out of Colombia because green was the color of paradise so it was incredibly powerful and um they had a workshop set up and so I got a sense of the smell of the leather and the tiny, tiny little tools that people use to create uh, the most extraordinary um, and really highly decorated pieces of jewellery. I don't know if you've seen the Cartier exhibition, but they're highly wrought, I guess, and it, so is much of the Elizabethan and Tudor jewellery that I write about. And I guess some... Um, so from that, I started reading some books and then I took myself off to London and I just walked the streets. And London is an extraordinary city because you can still see the remnants of, you know, the Great Fire and you can and you can see the rebuilding, of course, all of Wren's buildings and his classic monument where the fire started is just extraordinary. And I write about that in the book and I write about... Um, I write about London almost as a character because I think, uh, and I had no idea when I was researching and writing about this, but I was writing about a time where London was decimated by the Great Fire and the plague and families were decimated, the city was decimated. And this is a city that has time and time again been raised by, you know, by invasion, by fire, by plague. And who would know that in 2020 we are a country that is on our knees due to, you know, the biggest fires we've ever seen and now this crazy virus that is going around the world. So I think the thing that has come out of it for me and definitely comes true in the book is how to hold yourself and the people you love in trauma, how to how to gather yourself and and cling together and and move through trauma and to that place of hope and optimism, and um, that is exactly what history teaches us. And I think right at this moment, uh, I had no idea when I wrote the book that we would be in this exact moment right now, but um, here we are. Yeah, it sounds like the perfect time to be looking back. Yeah, it's just um, you, you know, it is a time that we can. I do and. A number of people have said to me when they've been speaking to me, you seem really calm. And, I mean, I am a little bit. I mean, I'm at home with three teenagers. I'm not that calm all the time, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I do feel like this too will pass and, yeah. and the world will be a different shape on the other side. But I feel like, you know, if we hold steady and hold everyone around us and be good to them then we can all step into that new way and rebuild ourselves I mean London 
teaches that. You walk around London and you can see that. You go to the fire areas and they're already rebuilding. I mean, the human spirit is so strong and so resilient and ultimately very optimistic. And I think um, I think that's what I got out of history, really. Um, um, I would have to, I'd have to, con- yeah, I definitely would have to concur with you there. Like I've, I've not just read your book, but another couple of um, historical fiction books set you know, in both of them happen to be set also in England around the turn of the century. And, um, oh, and one of them was a little bit uh, set even further back. And it, it absolutely does, um, as you're reading it, you get lost in these worlds that are not yours, which is which is firstly a great thing. Um, uh, but then secondly, you do know that it is, you know, based on history and that you know that they all got through it and will get through it too. And it's like, so it's a perfect combination of um, um, sort of escaping from your own life, but also um, reaffirming that life does go on. So I definitely, um, I definitely felt that because I read, I read your book kind of as we were sort of heading into the isolation, um, isolation uh, sort of time. And um, it was definitely for the, you know, the while I was reading that, it just, it transported me and it was, and I think it would just do the same for anyone else that, um, that reads it as well. And I think um, the thing with jewellery and with books or any kind of art, like now is the time where it's really important to dive into what's beautiful, you know, yes. to read a beautiful piece of poetry, to read great literature. And um, I think jewellery is an important part of that too. I mean, not all of us can shop. I certainly can't shop one day. diamond ring, but um. But, you know, I can marvel at the beauty and the craftsmanship that's going into that because it's kind of the pinnacle of human achievement. It's like reading a great writer, looking at a beautiful piece of jewellery. It just reminds us what humans are capable of. And it's like watching a great dancer or anything. I think now is the time to kind of find those poignant moments of, you know, human endeavour and creative endeavour because it's so uplifting. Yeah, that's what makes it all worthwhile, huh? Yeah, can't um, dance. So another <laughs> another thing everyone has been doing at the moment has been cooking and returning to food. And looking over your work, there seems to be a kind of a relationship with food. I'm I'm on our blog now, and there's there's a recipe yeah. in one of, in your blog post for the Jade Lily. Um, tell me about your relationship with food and um bring it into your writing and and does it come across in in this new novel it does um I I love food I love eating I love um it's one of the things I find I do write about food a lot in this book because I think food transports you to the place so quickly it really um buries the reader in a place in the smell in the sounds and gives you uh, you know, obviously the flavour of the era and the time and the place that you're at. And it's a really um, essential way that I move through the world. I mean, I spend every day thinking about pretty much what I'm going to have for dinner that night. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not one for skipping meals. <laughs> and uh, and I love, we actually have a restaurant in Melbourne too uh, and wine bar. Uh, Bellotta. So, uh, you know, it's a big part of our lives. My husband sells wine and um, when we travel, it's the thing we love to do. I've always done it since the kids were small and um, I cook with them. They've, we've been doing a lot of cooking at home, actually. The kids have been doing a mm. lot of baking and um, 
And I find that gathering around the dinner table, one of the things that's come out of this, one of the great things that's come out of this is that I am really looking forward to preparing the family meal in the evening. And when during my day, when I'm quite busy, it has become a chore. Um, I always like the food to be good, but I don't necessarily want to be the one to cook it. <laughs> and <Yep>. um, <laughs> that's the way it rolls sometimes, isn't it? But I'm finding <laughs> at the moment because, you know, there's nothing else to do. I'm obsessing about every flavour and, um, yep. and I'm loving that time spent gathered around the table because nobody has to rush off anywhere or just yep. come in from sport. And it's quite... Um, it's it's a strange time and especially you know with teenagers we'll never have this time where they talk to us so much again probably not until they're in their 30s at least (laughs) so um yeah so I think food is my uh entree I mean food you can't go to Shanghai without sampling the food and um British food is a different kind of genre (laughs) to itself but it's but, you know, the thing about England is it's a good way of showing how international a city is. You can get anything in London and the quality is just superb. And um, and then the, as the we travel through countries of origin or often some of the key scenes, Kate with her sister is at a restaurant because I think that's just what, the way life rolls too. Like we do catch up for people with coffees or over food and um, and it's enjoyable. There's a there's a really great um, meal that happens um, in the in the book um, that is really really shows you I think um, in Essie's timeline um, what their life is like you know 99.9 percent of the time and then they get this you know this glimpse into this other world and it's not as if this world you know this um, this meal they have is is the finest gourmet meal ever but to Essie and her and the rest of her family it's like something that they've never they've never encountered um, so I think I definitely can see um, that, um, you know, how you've used food throughout the book to kind of really highlight sort of where each of the characters were. In fact, even when Ben was just asking you that question, I have the book next to me, I literally just opened to a random page and the first line on it was, just had dinner of rice, beans, shredded chicken and chorizo with Jesus, my fixer. So it's like, you know, (laughs) just randomly open the book and there we go, there's there's food and you can already tell. uh, I think it's in the the section um, where uh, two characters are not in the same same location and you've already just put one of the people in a certain area of the world just by talking about those ingredients and you know adding one name in um so i, I definitely um definitely appreciate as a fellow a fellow food lover um that you uh, you do include that in um in, in all your books yeah and it's a good way of showing love too i mean when you cook for someone there's there's one scene you talk about where the the neighbors cook for essie and that's you know, it's such kindness and I think you can show that too. So, um, you know, we do show love through food often. So, yeah, why not? Jesse, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming in and, and speaking to us about your novel today um, through Skype. Uh, have you been procrastinating while you were researching this one and therefore is there a new novel on the way? There is absolutely a new novel on the way and naturally I am um, starting to research my fourth novel, which <laughs> hasn't even been commissioned, but I've got three ideas for it. So, Excellent. Um, <laughs> uh, 
So I am in the stage where my kids refer to this. They go for long walks and um, I'll start uh, gesticulating just wildly in the air to to nobody. (laughs) (laughs) And my husband said to me the other day, are you talking to that strange man again? (laughs) He said, you just switch off and you just start, my hand gestures start going and my head starts running. So usually when I've got a novel... um, well underway I walk a lot so walk kilometers and kilometers because I just try and thrash out scene by scene and this one again is a multi-time era book and um, it's set across multiple locations and it's it's a it's a bit of a juggle and I'm not sure how it all snaps together yet it's it's a mystery and it's a mystery to me so I think it's, that it sounds like you've got some walking to do. <laughs> I do. I just haven't figured out who'd done it yet, but I figured that <laughs> I haven't figured that out yet. Um, maybe the uh, maybe the readers won't figure it out that early either. <laughs> Good. No, I think that's terrific. Thank you so much for chatting today. Um, and if you're listening and you're um, eager to uh, get in on this these these excellent novels. Um, all of Kirsty Manning's novels are available from booktopia.com.au right now. They're just a click away. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.